This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. If I say the word gospel or the gospels, you probably think of the canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are scholars, however, who do not accept the canonical gospels as the gospels. Rather, since the 1930s, an influential group of scholars has argued that there were competing gospels that were equally authentic or even more authentic than the gospels that became received as canonical. You might have heard of the Gospel of Judas. Newly discovered and released to the public in 2006, it was touted by the press as a competitor to the canonical Gospels. It's the stuff of Dan Brown novels, conspiracies, and an attempt to suppress the real history of Christianity and all of that. Well, the history of the text is remarkable, to say the least, and just to whet your appetite, the text ended up in the hands of an Ohio art dealer, which would make it apparently improbable. And it tells the story of Judas as Jesus' specially chosen disciple, the recipient of special revelation superior to anything received by the disciples. And the opening line tells the whole story. The secret message of the revelation which Jesus spoke to Judas Iscariot in the week leading up to the third day before they celebrated the Passover. I always like that little extra bit of detail, the same thing you're five-year-old child does when you've caught them lying. Well, Dr. Simon Gathercole has been with us on campus for a couple of days to discuss these and other issues. He is reader in New Testament studies in the Faculty of Divinity, Cambridge University. He earned his B.A. in Classics and Theology there, and he did his Ph.D. research in Durham with James Dunn. Before joining the Divinity Faculty in Cambridge, he taught in the University of Aberdeen. Dr. Gathercole is a scholar of the New Testament who explores the intersection between Judaism and Christianity and who writes on Christology and the Atonement, among other things. He is a prolific and gifted author. His most recent book is Defending Substitution, an essay on atonement in Paul, published by Baker in 2015 and available online and in good bookstores everywhere. He has also published The Gospel of Thomas, an introduction and commentary in 2014, and The Gospel of Judas by OUP in 2007. Hi, Simon, and welcome to Office Hours. Hi, thanks for having me. We are very excited to have you on campus, and particularly because you have addressed a whole range of vitally important issues, the doctrine of justification, the new perspective on Paul. You studied it, one of the leading proponents of that approach to Paul and the New Testament, and you've addressed these fascinating issues about the canonical gospels and how to tell them apart from non-canonical gospels. And that's the thing you were talking about today. And what are you going to be talking about tomorrow? Well, I'm continuing the theme today. So today I was uh, addressing the larger question of uh, how do we compare canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with others like the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas that you mentioned. So I'll be continuing that tomorrow. Today I was focusing on how each of those gospels, you know, whether inside or outside the Bible, was dealing with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And tomorrow in the lecture tomorrow, I'm looking at how each of these gospels deals with Jesus as a Jewish Messiah and how they deal with his fulfillment of scripture. So those are the two subjects that I'm addressing tomorrow. So that is interesting. And I know the students were very excited to have you here in the faculty. And uh, we had a full house this morning to uh, hear you and lots of people from the community as well. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become a New Testament scholar and why? 
Ah, that's a good question. I studied at Cambridge and I started off studying classics. And at the beginning, I had no intention of becoming a New Testament scholar. But while I was a student in Cambridge, I got involved in Christian work and Christian ministry a bit, you know, on campus in the Christian Union at Cambridge. And um, that was where I first started sort of thinking through lots of theological issues. And I sort of found I enjoyed it. I found I had lots of questions that I wanted to answer. I already knew Greek from being a classic student. So I was getting stuck into reading my New Testament and beginning to engage even before I studied theology and looking at commentaries and scholarly works. And I found I just wanted more time to look into all these things. And so in my final year at university, I changed to theology and then went on and did a PhD after that. And the rest is history. Literally. (laughs) So when you say classics, you're talking about reading Xenophon and Plato and Uh Homer. Yeah. And so now you find yourself reading New Testament. And from a linguistic point of view, there's some difference between the two. Mm -hmm. If once you've read Homer, then to sit down and read John, there's a pretty considerable difference. Uh But more similarity, perhaps, with Acts and Hebrews. Mm -hmm. And I ask this because one of the fellows whom I study, Calvin, was a humanist. Mm -hmm. And he wrestled with that sometimes, having been a student of the classics and now reading the New Testament, he felt sometimes like he had to apologize a little bit Mm -hmm. for the rhetorical differences Mm -hmm. between them. Yeah, I mean, that's something that goes back pretty early in the church, that uh, people like Jerome were having the same struggles. I think it's a dream that Jerome has, where he's brought before God at the judgment, and God asks him, Jerome, why should you be admitted to the kingdom of heaven? And Jerome says, because I'm a Christian. And God says to him, no, you're not a Christian. You're a Ciceronian. In your heart, you really love Cicero. You really love the high style of the Greek and uh, Roman classics rather than scripture. And so Jerome is rebuked by this dream and finds that he has to... uh, address that in his soul. And so yes, it's something that the early Christians had to deal with, you know, both internally and also in response to critics of scripture. And I think it's certainly true that the New Testament is written in a simple style. It's not elite literature. And I think that's probably part of the point. You know, this is literature which is designed to be read aloud and heard by anyone from any educational background. So when Mark was read out in churches, it would have been pretty easily comprehensible to pretty much anyone, I would assume. And it's only really in the second century that you begin to read sort of elite style Christian literature. So Tertullian, writing at the end of the second, beginning of the third century, Mm. is one of the first authors to really write beautiful, beautiful Latin in high rhetorical style. And so that's the beginnings of the sort of intellectual movement within Christianity. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And one can get a feel for that, even in English, Mm. reading Tertullian, an English translation. It is really remarkable, Mm -hmm. stunning, sometimes striking the expressions that one finds. We were today, just this morning, we were reading Augustine Mm -hmm. on um, De Doctrina. And we found we had to stop ever so often as we were discussing this just to appreciate the style. Right, yeah, yeah. The hour before that, it was Athanasius on the Incarnation. We had the same experience. But there is a depth in the New Testament that one doesn't necessarily find in the classics. Obviously, the subject matter is different, but there's a power in the New Testament that Calvin notes, or a power in Scripture Mm -hmm. that one simply doesn't find in the classics. Mm -hmm. It's fun to read Erasmus making fun of the hubris and the arrogance and the immorality of the age, but after a while it gets a little tedious, and I've never gotten tired of reading Luke. Sure, yeah. I mean, my favorite classical author is probably Plato, and I love Plato's style, not just the linguistic style, but the way he stages the dialogues. And by comparison with the New Testament, you know, Plato is in a league of his own in terms of literature, but there's a sort of coldness in Plato in some respects. There's none of the warmth and 
declaration of truth, I suppose, that you find in the New Testament, even leaving aside the question of the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, there is that. Yes, the incarnation, obedience, death, resurrection of Christ, that changes everything. So you were seized, in a sense, by the New Testament. Mm. And part of what you're doing here and part of your work has been to compare and contrast the New Testament with second century literature that in some ways imitated the New Testament Mm. and purported to fill in the blanks. Uh, Some of that literature is Gnostic and some of it is esoteric. I mean, people debate about how to classify this literature. So can you introduce us to this competing body of literature Mm. to which people are now appealing and saying, see, this is evidence that uh, the New Testament is just arbitrarily selected and it's all politics. Mm Yeah, I guess you have four different genres of writing in the New Testament. You have Gospels, which are basically sort of biographical accounts of Jesus. You have Acts, which is historiography, history writing, effectively. You have Letters, and then you have the Apocalypse, the Book of Revelation. And beginning in the second century and going on really for a long time after that, you have each of these four different types of writing, these different genres of New Testament literature being imitated and improvised later on. So what is best known is the body of the Gospels. You know, mentioned by Dan Brown and also by other popular writers, which you find often in the media. So the Gospel of Thomas, for example, the Gospel of Philip, which Dan Brown uses as evidence that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and so on. That's really well known. What's less well known is that there are also apocryphal acts of the apostles. So there are acts of Thomas, acts of Andrew, acts of Paul, acts of Paul and Thecla. There's a whole generation of later writings which base themselves on the book of Acts, but then jump off in different directions. Then also there is a smaller body of apocryphal epistles as well. So Paul's third letter to the Corinthians, for example, gets written in the second century by someone wanting to imitate Paul and, uh, you know, epistles of other apostles as well. And then finally, you have the book of Revelation, which already sort of taps into an existing Jewish body of literature in the apocalyptic mould. That is to say, they are revelations from God, often through a mediator figure like an angel to a human visionary. And uh, again, in early Christianity, there are quite a lot of other apocalypses. And so each of the different types of literature in the New Testament get imitated in the second, third, fourth onwards centuries. Is there a way to unify these things? In other words, in the second century, what would motivate someone to write a competing gospel or an imitation of Acts Mm -hmm. or an imitation of the epistles or apocalypse or what have you? Well, sometimes one of the uh, people who gets told off for writing an apocryphal text says that he's doing it in memory of Paul and he claims to have done it with a positive intent and to stand in continuity with New Testament writings. And and obviously there's lots of Christian literature that is outside of the Bible, but which is seeking, you know, whether one you know, in the church fathers in particular, which is seeking to preach the gospel and preserve the, uh, the scriptural testimonies and so on. But uh, I think uh, alongside that, there's also a strong tendency in this apocryphal literature to subvert what the New Testament is saying. So, for example, when the Gospel of Judas talks about the disciples, the disciples are painted in a very negative light. They're painted not just in a negative light in the way that Mark's gospel does say, but that they're fundamentally mistaken about who God is, and that um, the choice of Judas as a subversive alternative apostle, supreme apostle, is a significant one because he therefore undercuts the authority of the disciples. Similarly, in calling a gospel the gospel of Mary, the idea there is that as with Judas, you're seeking a kind of an alternative route back to Jesus that avoids the established disciples like Simon Peter and John and Andrew and others. 
And some of them have an alternate story about Jesus, that he wasn't really crucified. Some of them have him crucified. But in the case of Judas, he's the hero, right, rather than the goat. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's certainly the figure who, you know, against everything that we're led to expect from the New Testament. He's certainly the figure that Jesus singles out as the one who's going to be the recipient, who's going to receive Jesus' special revelation. Yeah. So that clearly is something which none of the other disciples receive. Same in the Gospel of Mary, where Jesus takes Mary aside and gives her special revelation. Same in the Gospel of Thomas, where Thomas alone is the one who writes down the secret teaching of Jesus. Yeah, and that's a giveaway for this class of text, right? This is the secret teaching. So they advertise, in a sense, right up front. This is different. This is something you're not going to get someplace else. And oftentimes, isn't it the case that they're trying to fill in the blanks? So you have texts purporting to tell us what happened, you know, between the time Jesus appears at the temple and the mm-hmm. time he reappears for his baptism, or between the time of his return from Egypt mm-hmm. and his appearance in the temple and so forth. So a lot of it is filling in the blanks or where Jesus, uh, you know, between the resurrection and the ascension and so forth. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there are two things going on. One is that the gaps are being filled in to supplement what is going on in the canonical gospel. So the infancy gospel of Thomas, for example, is a kind of funny text which recounts lots of Jesus' childhood deeds, him turning clay into sparrows and magically producing pools of water and magically raising people from the dead and so on. and Making his playmates go away, making his teacher go away. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and it's interesting that begins when Jesus is about five years old, I think. And the final episode in the infancy gospel of Thomas is Jesus in the temple as he is in Luke chapter two, when his mother and Joseph have gone off after Passover and have lost Jesus. They go back to the temple and they find him there. So that's clearly intended to sort of supplement the canonical picture. Another way, though, in which the apocryphal gospels aim to fill in the gaps is much more subversive though and so the gospel of judas for example or the gospel of mary will have these points in the gospel narrative where mary or judas or whoever it is gets a special revelation and certainly in the case of the gospels of judas and thomas this is not merely intended to supplement the canonical gospels but actually to replace them and to produce an entirely different picture that is contradicting the existing picture of christianity and seeking to replace it with something else you're listening to office hours and we're talking with dr simon gathercole about the new testament about competing gospel accounts and other forms of competing literature and the contest, in a sense, that exists in the late modern West to determine, in a sense, what is authentic Christianity, because people like Dan Brown and others, Stephen Prothero from Boston University has claimed that there were lots of gospel accounts out there. And, you know, the church sat down at Laodicea in the 360s and uh, arbitrarily selected these and not those, never mind the fact that there's a considerable degree of doubt as to whether there ever really was a council of Laodicea, let alone whether they accomplished all of this Mm. in the 360s. Yeah, I mean, the uh, striking thing about the discussion of the canon is it often neglects what is already the case in the second century. So already at the end of the second century, you have a list of canonical books, which is very like what we have today, four gospels, all the epistles, the epistles of Paul and other epistles. So already in the second century, there's a sort of canon consciousness about early Christians. Say that again, please. That is a hugely important point. What yeah. you just said, already in the second century, there is a canonical consciousness. So that the idea of canon is not a fourth century idea. 
it's already, as you were arguing, I think, this morning, a New Testament idea, but certainly it's a second century idea. Well, it's a pre-Christian idea, of course, because yeah. because the Jews already had a clear sense of certain books being scriptural around the time of the New Testament writings. Certain authors, not all of them, but certain authors have a fixed canon. So Josephus, who's writing in the late first century, you know, contemporary of the Apostle John, say, Josephus gives the number of how many Old Testament books there are. Now, if you can name the number of how many Old Testament books there are, then it's a fixed canon. You find the same thing in the Apocalypse for Ezra, again, at the end of the first century, around the same time as Josephus. So Jews clearly had a sense that the Torah, the first five books of the Bible or scripture, clearly had a sense of certain prophets being inspired by God, as well as the writings like the Psalms being prophecy. So David is called, uh, so it's not just Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others who are prophets. David himself is a prophet who speaks by the Holy Spirit. So the Psalms are not just, you know, his collection of poetry, but are divinely inspired writings. So the early Christians, who of course were Jews, and so inherited this canon consciousness. And so when they followed Jesus, and Jesus spoke of inaugurating a new covenant, then it's not unexpected then that they would produce the writings of their own. Their own covenant documents, if you like. The Bible is a storybook. The stories of Scripture are thrilling and, best of all, true. For thousands of years, the stories of the Bible have captured the imaginations of believers. But how do you and I fit into God's stories? Creation, the flood, Abraham, Israel, and David. Join the faculty of Westminster Seminary, California, January 12 and 13, 2018. For our annual conference, The Bible, His Stories, Your Life, on campus in Escondido. We'll explore how you and I fit into God's unfolding story of redemption. Join W. Robert Godfrey, David Vendrunen, Dennis Johnson, Joel Kim, Brian Estelle, and Joshua Vinnie for The Bible, His Stories, Your Life at Westminster Seminary, California. It's Friday and Saturday, January 12 and 13 at Westminster Seminary, California, 1725 Bear Valley Parkway, Escondido. Call 888-480-8474 or go to wscal.edu, 888-480-8474 or wscal.edu. For our January 2018 conference, The Bible, His Stories, Your Life. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. As I look at the second century texts, early second century texts collected in different ways in the 17th century through the 19th century, even into the 20th century as the apostolic fathers, Mm. those writers fairly consistently defer to the New Testament Mm -hmm. as having a kind of authority that their own writings, whether it's Polycarp or one of my favorites, Diognetus, Mm -hmm. those writings simply are not treated as the same as the New Testament writings or Mm. the Old Testament writings, that what we receive as canonical texts are already in the early second century seen as having a kind of authority, an intrinsic authority, that no council has conferred on them. Certainly the earliest apostolic fathers like one Clement and Ignatius don't see themselves as in the same position as the apostles. They look back to the apostles as the entrusted recipients of the gospel and don't see themselves as having that same kind of authority. And uh, yeah, just as you say, in the case of the epistle of Diognetus, you have a clear sense there that there 
are gospels, which are the authoritative documents of the church. One of the contexts out of which some or maybe many of these non-canonical texts come is Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. That's a huge topic and we could probably spend weeks discussing it. But we don't have weeks. We have a few minutes. Can you, and this is terribly unfair, but can you quickly give us and the listener a sense of what Gnosticism was and why it would have produced some of this competing literature? Mm, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think scholars and people in the media and general public often use Gnosticism or Gnosis as a very broad term to refer to any kind of early Christian influence text which bases itself on knowledge rather than faith on revelation primarily to the exclusion of, say, Jesus' atoning sacrifice. And I think although that's been a popular movement in scholarship to define Gnosis and Gnostics very broadly, I think it's an unhelpful one partly because it can distort our understanding of the ancient literature, much of which actually in the earliest period defines Gnostics in a particular way. And the particular way in which Gnostics are defined, say in the earliest fathers, earliest church fathers like Irenaeus at the end of the second century, but also by pagan philosophers who also engage with the Gnostics, uh, it has a particular sense. Now, uh, Irenaeus and others of the church fathers are horrified by the Gnostics because they distort Christianity, but also philosophers who are sort of following in the general line of Plato were also horrified by the Gnostics because um, the Platonists at the time, say in the third century, the famous Platonist philosopher, uh, interpreter of Plato called Plotinus, and one of his disciples, Porphyry, they're horrified by the idea that the world is evil and that the creator of the world is evil because they're very influenced by certain strands in Platonic philosophy where the world is created as good by a good demiurge, by a good uh, creator figure. And so one of the things that I found interesting is that in both the early church fathers and in these philosophers from the third century, they have a particular definition of who Gnostics are. And they are specifically people who think that the creator figure is evil and that the world as a result is evil. Now that distinguishes them from other, you know, unorthodox movements within early Christianity. So for example, another group that often gets lumped together with the Gnostics is the group that followed the lead of Valentinus, one of the uh, most significant unorthodox figures in second century Christianity. Now Valentinus didn't take the view that creation was evil and that the creator was evil, but more that the creator was incompetent. And so in the Gospel of Philip, for example, you have the statement, Valentinian text probably, you have the statement that the creator of the world tried to create an imperishable world, a world that wasn't subject to decay, but he failed to do that. And so creation came about as a mistake. Others from the second century, perhaps Marcion, viewed the creator not as good, but not as evil, but as simply just. So he was defined not by mercy, but by justice, the creator God. So there are a variety of different perspectives on God and creation in the second century that are jostling for competition. Were a Christian to pick up a collection of apocryphal New Testament texts, so not canonical texts, but these mm -hmm. competing texts, some of them written out of a Gnostic background, some from Valentinian, some from Marcionite, and uh, some from other sort of esoteric points of view, and started to read them, how would you guide that person to reading that literature and how to compare and contrast that mm -hmm. with the New Testament? I think what I would say is when you come to read this literature, to have a few particular questions in mind of what you're looking for. So, for example, one of the things that I've done particularly and have done to some extent in these lectures is to ask the question, in this apocryphal literature, how do they treat the identity of Jesus? How do they treat the death of Jesus and the resurrection? How do they treat the theme of scriptural fulfillment? You know, because those are the questions that are sort of at the core of the Christian message. And so the question of how they deal with these questions will determine, you know, to a large extent, one's own view of them. I think also I 
in my own work at least try not just to in sort of impose questions from the outside but to to understand what they're trying to do in themselves and that's obviously the way to find out you know what their particular theological outlook is so one can read these texts solely with the question you know what are they trying to do what are they trying to say how how might one sum up this message but also from, i suppose from reading them from a christian standpoint one might want to come with particular christian questions to them about the identity of jesus and what he's accomplished what do they say about that Taking, for example, the Gospels, these are mostly second century documents, Mm -hmm. and the canonical Gospels are first century documents. That seems like a significant fact to me that sometimes gets blurred Mm -hmm. in the way that people write about this Mm -hmm. when they suggest that um, John or Mark or Matthew were just sort of arbitrarily selected over Thomas or Judas Mm -hmm. or what have you. Help us understand why that is important and how one can look at these competing texts and see within them indicators of the different location Mm -hmm. and time. I suppose there are two sides to that. On the one hand, you know, the first and the second century are only a millisecond apart um, at one level because they're just, to some extent, arbitrary periods of history. But I think there is significance in the chronological factor, though, because the four New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, are written in a time frame during which eyewitnesses of the earthly Jesus were still around. And so Mark, for example, the tradition claims that Mark was based on the memoirs of Simon Peter. Mark, as an author, knew the apostles. Similarly, that John was an apostle or a disciple of Jesus. So even if one's sceptical of those particular names as authors of the Gospels, those works are clearly written during a time when eyewitnesses were still alive. And you can see that sort of reflected in the fact that the geography of the Gospels, the names in the Gospels, really reflect the culture of first century Palestine. And one could talk about other features like plants and coins and all sorts of other things as well. When one gets into the second century and second century Gospels, by that time, those who were eyewitnesses of the earthly Jesus have died out. Therefore, second century gospel writers are able to exercise much more freedom, uh, in a sense, in how they present Jesus, because there's no one around who can easily contradict it anymore, at least from a historical point of view. They're unencumbered by history. Yes, right. Yeah, they transcend the facts. <laughs> so that's important. And so they have Jesus sometimes as being present in the second mm-hmm. century. Yeah. I mean, in the Gospel of Judas, for example, you have Judas saying to Jesus that uh, he knows who Jesus really is. Judas knows who Jesus really is, that he's come from the eon of barbello now it sounds like something out of star trek but uh, um, but actually it's a it's a very common feature of second century uh, gnostic and gnostic influenced texts that there's a figure alongside the supreme divine figure called barbello so that's why yeah in the gospel of judas and in other similar discourses where jesus has great mythical revelations you often find him making use of second century gnostic mythology you're listening to office hours from westminster seminary california So when you and others distinguish between the canonical Gospels and these mostly second century texts and later, this isn't arbitrary. You're not just making things up and supporting traditional Christianity Mm -hmm. over against non-traditional forms of Christianity because you like the one and dislike the other. There's actual intrinsic evidence in the text that if one pays attention, that the text themselves will sometimes tell you, look, this is from a different time. This is from a different place. And so we're not just making up things. Yeah, that's right. I think there are historical and theological reasons for that. So in terms of chronology, I think it's clear that the four New Testament Gospels are by far and away our best and indeed really 
for practical purposes only sources for the reconstruction of who Jesus was and uh, that's actually quite a commonly held scholarly opinion even by someone very mainstream like E.P. Sanders had said that. I think also theologically because when you come to some second century writings where there's a distinction as I've mentioned in Gnostic authors and in Valentinian authors there's a distinction between the supreme deity and the creator figure. That's something which is as far as I can tell unimaginable as the teaching of Jesus. It's impossible for me to imagine that when Jesus prayed Abba, he was thinking, well, it's one God, but not the other. I'm praying to the supreme deity. I'm not praying to the creator. Jesus clearly had the sense that the supreme deity and the creator God were one and the same. The God of Israel was the one who created all things, and there was no one higher than him. So I think it's not just sort of chronological and cultural factors in the Gospels, but also the theology that makes it, from my point of view, easy to distinguish between them. I began by talking a little bit about the Gospel of Judas, Mm -hmm. and uh, maybe 10 years ago now, you did a marvelous book on that, and it's a remarkable story that I'm afraid most people don't know. As I was reading it, I was thinking, now this is the thing about which there should be a movie, right? (laughs) And again, this is terribly unfair, but if you could give us a thumbnail sketch, then maybe it would encourage the listener to go out and get a copy of this book and uh, read the story for himself. Tell us just the quick story of the text of the Gospel of Judas. Yeah, uh, we don't know exactly when the text was discovered. It may have been discovered in the 1970s. Say that again. You said that quickly. The when 70s? The 1970s. 1970s. Okay. So many of our Gnostic Gospels were discovered in the 1940s in the sands of Egypt. Or um, Again, we're not not quite sure where they came from. The Gospel of Judas may have been discovered around that time or possibly later. And it went through a number of hands, you know, dealers selling it, trying to sell it and try and get a big price for it and it sat in a bank vault in Hicksville uh, in the US uh, for a while gathering dust. It was kept for a while in a deep freeze by uh, one particularly unscrupulous dealer which didn't do the manuscript any favours and uh, it, well, Because it had to thaw right? yeah. now, you've, now you've introduced it relative to moisture Yeah, um, it's passed through. It's had a troubled history, this manuscript. And it eventually was sold to National Geographic. They eventually bought the text, or rather bought the contents of the text, so that they have the right to reproduce what the manuscript says. The manuscript itself is now in Cairo because it was probably smuggled out of Egypt illegally. And so now, happily, it's gone back to the Coptic Museum in Cairo. And this text, when it was announced to the world, was presented Mm. as a fundamental overturning of everything we know about Christianity. Yeah, that's right. As usual with these discoveries, it was published at Easter time. And I remember one British newspaper had it on the front page as the greatest archaeological discovery of all time, threat to 2000 years of Christian teaching. That's a quotation from the front page of the Mail on Sunday, as it was. And of course, that's completely crackers. There's there's nothing in it. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, that's completely crackers. All right. Well, that's important because people, you know, we live in this fast-paced culture and, and there are all these competing claims and people are not even sitting down to read newspapers much anymore. Mm. They see bits and pieces. And so they might have a memory that there was this claim made mm. and might not even realize that that claim was completely debunked Yeah, in your book. Yeah. Well, I think that's often the case in the newspapers. They pick on the most sensational stories. I remember when I was making a TV program with the BBC, or I'm not sure if it was the BBC or another production company, you know, where I was really um, encouraged to try and come up with something new. Can't you say something a bit more interesting? (laughs) (laughs) How about this? That some ladies went on the first day of the week to a tomb and there was nobody there. (laughs) That that strikes me as remarkably interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And one of the most recent stories was about the gospel of Jesus's wife. Yeah, tell us. The gospel of Jesus' wife was uh, announced in 2012 as a remarkable overturning again of Jesus, the celibate, yeah. wandering peasant preacher. So everything you thought you knew about Christianity is false. And yeah, that's here's right. the truth. And these evil conspirators at the back behind the scenes have been suppressing this and yeah. now it's come out. Yeah, the Vatican have obviously suppressed the fact that Jesus <laughs> was married because that would cause problems for them. Then after that, it was um, clearly debunked as a modern forgery. Then the newspapers made the sensational claim that actually now this is a modern forgery. And so they got two stories for the price <laughs> of one out of that one. And this is the way this stuff often goes. Mm. You know, if you just go by the headlines or you go see one of these Dan Brown movies, you read the novel. I mean, these things were wildly popular. And uh, people's perception of what's true and what's real, they either get shaken or shaped mm -hmm. by these popular mediations of what either frauds are doing or scholars are doing. Mm -hmm. And even scholars make outrageous claims that turn out not to be true. Mm -hmm. Your friend and mine, Chuck Hill, one of our graduates, wrote a book provocatively entitled Who Chose the Gospels, in which he demonstrates that a lot of the claims about this arbitrary selection, in fact, all of them are really unfounded mm -hmm. and untrue, and many of them are quite inflated. Mm -hmm. And uh, he makes the comparison, you know, going to this little village in Egypt where many of these texts have been discovered, and then using that as the baseline for what Christians really believed is a little bit like going to Salt Lake City, right, and doing a dig around Salt Lake City, and then deciding, well, all Americans must be Mormons, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's simply not true. It doesn't work. Yeah, I think one of the difficulties in our current age is that it's very difficult for us to have a sense of history. And I think many people who, say, read Dan Brown thought, well, there's this uh, claim about Leonardo da Vinci and what Leonardo da Vinci thought about Christianity. And Leonardo da Vinci is an old guy. Jesus was an old guy. <laughs> yeah, they're right next the, to the each Bible other. The Bible writers yeah. are, are old guys. Um, and so who knows, maybe Leonardo da Vinci was right in what he might have said about the yeah. uh, Last Supper and so on. And similarly, you know, to talk about the difference between writings in the first century and writings in the second century sounds like, you know, arguing about the difference between the Paleolithic period and the Jurassic period. I mean, it was all a long time ago, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Um, it all sort of mushes into one yeah, indistinguishable. Yeah. My kids at school have this great system where around their classrooms, they have a timeline of what happened in each century. And I would love it if everyone who thought about Christianity and Christian claims had a sort of timeline in their mind where they could say, oh, that's what happened in the 19th century was this, what happened in the 14th century was this, what happened in the 6th century is this. So we can make sort of slightly more reasoned judgments about how close in time people were to Jesus and the truth. And that, I think, is not done justice to by popular claims in the media. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.